We're certainly glad that you're here with us this morning. We're going to continue through our series in Esther. This morning, we've been going through for a few weeks now. Um, but before we begin um, looking at our text for this morning, I just have a couple pieces of information to pass on to you. And it'll be all that more impressive as my voice is very echoey, 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 echoey. There we go, maybe. Uh, many of you who are connected with the drop-in and with the street-level work already know this, but we thought it was uh, important to pass on to the, the wider body. Um, for the next few months, Kelly Curtis, who helps to lead that, will be taking a break from that, so she won't be directly involved in the, in the drop-in and in the sandwich run. And so Robin and Andy will be stepping up to help lead the Monday night drop-in. And what that... Yes. And what that means for the sandwich run is that we need some people to step up for the sandwich run, okay? So we just wanted to get that out there. Those are uh, important works in our church, and uh, certainly many have felt the impact of that over the years, and so uh, we appreciate your prayers and support in that area. I also wanted to update you on our Alpha course uh, Alpha has been running for a few weeks now on Tuesday nights at 6.30. Um, the first night we had 15 come to the building and last week we had 18, uh, seven of those being new from the previous week. And so we're very excited about that and we're having great conversations and Nancy's knocking it out of the park every week with dessert. And so we're looking forward to what God's going to do with that and we appreciate your prayers in that as well. So go ahead and open your Bibles to Esther uh, chapter 2. Esther chapter 2, we're in our fourth week going through the book of Esther, and if this is your first Sunday here for this series, or you're not familiar with the book of Esther, I'll get, get you up to speed a bit, and then we'll pick things up in verse 19 of chapter 2. So the story began with the king of Persia, Xerxes, or Ahasuerus, which I still cannot pronounce, but I can type correctly on my computer, so I feel that I'm gaining in that area, at least. Uh, the king throws a party, and in his drunkenness, tries to get his wife, Queen Vashti, to parade her beauty in front of her buddies. She refuses, so the king advisors suggest a great plan. Get rid of her, gather all the young, beautiful virgins in the empire, uh, help them or gather them in, let them spend one night with you, whatever one pleases you can be the new queen. And so when the edict goes out to gather all these young women, Esther gets gathered in that as well, and she's a Jewish orphan living in Susa, being raised by her older cousin Mordecai. And she goes to the palace, and eventually, wouldn't you know it, she's chosen to be the queen. And so we finished off last week with the king celebrating finding a new queen with more partying and less taxes for the people, and things are going well. Things are going well for Esther, things are going well for the king, things are going well for Mordecai. There's been some ups and downs, and there's been some compromises and whatnot that we saw last week, but physically speaking, things are going relatively well for everybody until today. And so we'll pick up our story in chapter 2, 
verse 19, and as you see, our title this morning is The Empire Strikes Back. I did not set out to do a Star Wars-themed outline, but I told Joe, I did my outline, and I looked at it, and I said, I just need to change a few words, and it's the trilogy from Star Wars, and so, miss this opportunity, I will not. <laughs> and he was okay with that. But of all the Sundays for Joe and his boys to miss, they missed the one that has a Star Wars outline. Joe and Angela and the boys and, Na and Anna and Barb and Gary are over at uh, Christ Central Charlottetown's weekend away, and so Joe will be starting his sermon right now as well. So uh, we're excited to hear the report of how that weekend went. So let's pray, and we'll go from... We've got a big chunk to read. It'll be part of the the thing of going through the book of Esther is that you've got to read large chunks so that you know what's happening in the story. So we'll read from Esther 2, 19 through to the end of chapter 3. And then next week, our very own Becky Gallant will pick up chapter 4. So make sure you're here for that. She's back there. Woo! There we go. All right, so let's pray and I'll read through. So Father, we thank you for your presence here with us. This morning, we thank you that you are a good God, and we just pray that as we come to your word, that your spirit would make it alive to us, and we want to be changed by your word. We want to be changed in your presence, so we pray, Father, that you'd open our eyes to see the wonderful things contained in your word. And we pray for Joe and Angela and Barb and Gary as they're there in PEI, that you'd bless them this morning, and that you do a mighty work through them in that church. For your glory, we pray. Amen. Okay, Esther 2, starting in 19. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people, as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus, Ahasuerus, uh, anyway, Xerxes. <laughs> and this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. After these ki things, King Xerxes promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. And the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they, made, as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, through the whole kingdom of Xerxes. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Xerxes, they cast pure, that is, they cast lots before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. 
Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, so that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also. Do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, and an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Xerxes and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. So our section begins here in Esther 2 with the king apparently... Um, gathering a second group of young women, which that first verse that we read and that last verse that we read kind of show us a bit of the character of the king. Yes, Esther pleased him and he chose her to be queen, but he didn't ple- she didn't please him that much. He's still gathering women. And that last verse, the whole city's in confusion and the king sits down to drink. And so we see it's just another example that Esther isn't quite the Cinderella story, Princess Diaries, uh, happy ever after story of a uh, poor Jewish orphan girl becoming the queen of Persia. And so uh, at the end of chapter two, Mordecai is there in the, in the king's courts and he becomes aware of a plot to kill the king. And he tells Esther and Esther tells the king, and so chapter 2 ends just as you would think chapter 3 would open with, uh, and Mordecai was rewarded by great riches, and he was promoted in the king's courts for his good deed that he did. That's how, when you're reading through, that's the next line that you would think. It was, he discovered the plot, he saved the king's life, chapter 3, and the king rewarded Mordecai with great riches and advanced him in his courts. And instead, we read, after these things, King Xerxes promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And so there's a part of us when we read Esther 3.1 that is supposed to say, that's not how it's supposed to work, right? There's a part of us when we read Esther 3.1, we're supposed to say, That is not how it is supposed to go. Instead of Mordecai being promoted, we have some guy named 
Haman. We don't understand the reasons for this promotion. We don't know how Mordecai's deed went unrewarded presently, but the abrupt switch and the injustice of it all is meant to get our attention. The big difference between this just being some stranger being promoted over Mordecai is that this is Haman. And so we remember when we did the overview of the book a few weeks ago, we said that when the Jews read through Esther, when they celebrate Purim, all the kids do what? They boo and hiss and try to drown out the name of Haman every time it's mentioned. He's Haman, the Agagite, and for those of us who aren't very perceptive, it goes on to say Haman, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And so this isn't just some random guy. This is Haman, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And so what's the significance of Haman being an Agagite, the descendants, descendant of Agag? We'll go on a quick journey through the Old Testament. Okay, a very quick one. Flip back to Exodus 17. This helps a bit to get the context of what's going on here. So Exodus 17, we have the famous story of the Israelites wandering through the desert and Amalek comes and in his army and they attack the Israelites as they're wandering through the desert. And if you remember, Moses is up and whenever he lifts his hands up, the army wins as he gets tired and his hands come down. Joshua starts to lose the battle. And then uh, Hur and Aaron hold his hands up and uh, the Israelites win the battle. And at the end, Moses' hands probably had an incredible tingly feeling from holding them above his head for so long. Uh, but he also says this in verse 16. He says, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. So because Amalek attacked God's people while they're wandering in the desert, a fairly severe judgment is put upon him and his descendants. The Lord will have war from, with Amalek from generation to generation. And if you flip ahead to 1 Samuel 15, 1 Samuel 15, If you remember back in chapter 2 last week when we read about Mordecai, it said that he was a Benjaminite, uh, a son of Kish. There's another Benjaminite, the son of Kish, that's fairly famous in the Old Testament, and that's King Saul. And so uh, here we see King Saul in 1 Samuel 15. God says in verse 2, he says, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So in 1 Samuel 15, God is finally bringing uh, to pass the judgment that he put on Amalek and his descendants back in Exodus 17. So Saul goes and he attacks the Amalekites but compromises a bit on what God told him to do. He saves some of the good stuff because, you know, why waste all the good stuff and the cows and the sheep and whatnot. And he also see, saves King Agag. He also saves King Agag. And eventually the prophet Samuel shows up and Saul comes and says, hey, I did everything that God told me to do. And Samuel's like, I couldn't really hear you over all the bleeding of the sheep that you saved and things do not go well from there. Saul tries to wiggle out of it, 
And that's where we get the, the famous verse that to obey is better than sacrifice. And uh, Samuel tells Saul that the kingdom this day is ripped from your hand. And then if you read verse 33, Samuel gets pretty intense at finishing up what Saul failed to do. So, that is the background. We have Exodus 17, Amalekites versus Israelites. We get up to 1 Samuel 15. We have Saul versus Agag. Now we arrive in Esther chapter 3. We have Mordecai, a descendant of Saul, the family of Kish, a Benjaminite, against Haman, the descendant of Agag. And so that's the significance uh, between or from the Bible describing Haman as Haman the Agagite. It's not just a helpful description. It's letting us know this long-standing animosity between the two. So when we understand all the backstory, Haman's extreme reaction makes a bit more sense. At first, it's like, okay, a guy didn't bow down to you, and now you want genocide. That seems a bit heavy, right? And it seems a bit overkill. But when we understand the backstory that all this has just been kind of riding under the surface, it makes a bit more sense. When we first read it, it's a bit like my dad used to tell me the story about this old guy that lived by them that lived in a shack, and Dad said when he saw a mouse in his house, he would shoot it with a shotgun, <laughs> which would make more holes in the wall, which I think would lead to more mice. <laughs> but it's like killing a mouse with a shotgun. The guy didn't bow down to you, and now you just want to wipe out the entire Jewish nation within the Persian Empire. But when we understand the background, uh, it helps us a bit. This whole thing has just been boiling under the surface through generations and just kind of waiting for another drop in the bucket to overflow and Mordecai provides that drop by refusing to bow down to Haman. It was a matter of conscience for Mordecai that I am Mordecai the Jew, you are Haman the Agagite and I will not bow down to a sworn enemy of God. And so when I read that it kind of brought to remembrance this week our whole series from the summer in Ephesians 6, 10 to 20 called Stand. Haman, or Mordecai refuses to bow down. Instead, he stands. And we have an enemy. An enemy is powerful and cunning spiritual forces of evil against us. And God calls us in Ephesians 6, 10 to 20 to stand and not to bow under the attacks he brings against us. And so far from just some silly confrontation, Haman's plot in Ephesians 3 is all part of the enemy's greater plot to destroy the people of God. He is an enemy who robs, kills, and destroys. And so Haman's desire to kill the Jews is part of our enemy's constant and consistent desire to attack God's people. And he will use governments and rulers like Haman to try to accomplish that. And like Mordecai, whenever God's people take a stand, we can be sure that the empire will strike back against us. We should expect a battle. So upon learning of Mordecai's refusal to bow down, Haman goes to the king, pitches his idea, and once again we, we see the complete 
ineptitude of Xerxes. He seems unable to make any decisions himself. He just seems to float along with whatever his advisors think is best. Upon hearing Haman's proposal to entirely wipe out a certain group of people living, in with the, living within the empire, he agrees. He doesn't really ask who they are. He doesn't really ask why. He doesn't think of the economic implications of wiping out thousands and thousands of people within your empire in a day. He just says to Haman, sure, Haman, do whatever you seems right. You know, can I get back to watching Netflix sort of thing? He just seems oblivious to it all. And one commentator says that in his pitch for this genocide, Haman presents the Jews as different, difficult, and dangerous. As different, difficult, and dangerous. There is a certain people scattered abroad through the empire. They're different. They have different laws. They do not keep the king's laws. And as we look through history, we know that this is not a one-off event. The same ruthless attack on God's people with the same motivation behind it has never let up. They're different, they're difficult, they're dangerous, something must be done. So this attack in Esther kind of points us ahead to a few hundred years later when wise men were traveling from the east to Jerusalem to find a promised Messiah. They take a pit stop in Herod's palace. He learns from then that this new king is to be born in Bethlehem. Feeling his throne threatened, he sends out his soldiers to kill all the male babies age two and under so that he can wipe out this dangerous rival to his throne. And Jesus, as we know, is providentially saved, but the attacks will continue through his life. Jesus is attacked on one occasion in the Gospels. It says that the religious leaders took him of a, to a cliff to throw them off, and then there's just the great line that says Jesus just passed through them, which I just love. One does not simply throw Jesus off a cliff. Eventually, as we know, the attacks bring Jesus before Pilate, where he's mocked, the crown of thorns is pushed into his forehead, and nails are driven through his hands and feet to a Roman cross. And the attacks don't stop with the death of Jesus either. When we get to Acts, we run into the ragtag bunch of people claiming that Jesus was alive. And like Mordecai and like Jesus, when you take a stand against the empire, the empire strikes. And when you live differently because of Jesus, you are often seen at the very, <coughs> at the very least difficult and even dangerous and the disciples are beaten, they're thrown in prison, they are stoned to death, they are threatened, and they are exiled. And Jesus had promised that in this world they would have trouble. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. And his promise was not empty, we see as we go through Acts. We see it's not empty when we reach the early church history at the end of Acts that Christians under the Roman Empire endured intense persecutions at the hands of the Roman emperors. Burn incense to the emperor or die, reproach Christ or die. In AD 110, a leader in the Antioch church named Ignatius was captured and brought to Rome. On the journey from Antioch to Rome, while being guarded by Roman soldiers, he preached the gospel in every town that they went through 
And they arrived in Rome and he was sentenced to be fed to the lions and his final words were, now I begin to be a disciple. Same is true October 6, 1536, 479 years ago this Tuesday. William Tyndale, the first translator of the New Testament into English, was tied to a stake and burned. And there are countless more through history of men and women like Ignatius and like Tyndale who endured persecution for the sake of Christ. The history of the church is marked by persecution, by imprisonment, by torture, by execution. It's marked by men and women who read Matthew's words, who read Jesus' words in Matthew 5 when he says, Blessed are you when they persecute you for righteousness' sake, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. And they say, That is what I will live for. I will live not for this world, but I will live for the kingdom of heaven, and I won't bow down to the empire no matter what the empire might bring against me. We see it over and over through church history. The event in Esther with Haman attacking the people of God continues and continues and continues even into the present day. It is not just a past issue. The worldwide church today endures the same persecution when we looked at the armor of God this summer and focused on the fact that we do have an enemy who wants to rob, kill, and destroy, yes, there are individual attacks against us, but ultimately Satan's desire is to attack and destroy all of the church, and he works through empires, through governments, through leaders, through the mob, whatever he can to persecute God's people. So we shouldn't be surprised to hear that persecution against the church is alive and well today in 2015 and in our kind of Atlantic Canadian bubble sometimes we can say you know really is it is persecution really you know alive and well in our society you know sometimes things look bleak sometimes we might face some harsh treatment because of Christ but relatively speaking we enjoy much freedom so why would we talk about persecution on a Sunday morning why would we talk about you know, the persecution against the church and the history of it and its present-day impact when it's not really something that we endure, in, endure ourselves. Well, first, I think we need to be aware of what's going on around the world. Our vision needs to be a little bit bigger than the four corners of Fredericton. We need to be aware of what God's people are going through around the world around us. Second, even though we enjoy much freedom, we know that there is persecution here as well, whether it be verbal jabs or social isolation or a loss of a job or gossip or what have you. Uh, it might not be as intense as other parts of the world, but it's just as real for those going through it. And the same principles that we'll look at shortly apply for us as well. And thirdly, I'm not some pronouncer of doom and that the blood moon in September lines up with the verse in Ezekiel and it's all going to go downhill soon, but I think it's safe to assume that we will not enjoy the freedom that we enjoy now forever, that we will not enjoy the uh, religious freedom and the absence of persecution that we enjoy now 
forever. And whether I go through it or whether Lydia goes through it or whether Lydia's uh, children go through it, uh, it's safe to assume that it will happen someday to a greater degree. And so that's why I think it's important to look at persecution and talk about it today. So today, in our world right now, with all our thoughts of freedom and tolerance and advancements, Christians are the most persecuted religious group in the world. Christians are the most persecuted religious group in the world. More Christians were martyred in the 20th century than in the previous 19 combined. Our world today doesn't look that different from Esther 3. Open Doors, a group that works with persecuted Christians, reports that an average of 322 Christians are executed for their faith each month. 322 Christians are executed for their faith each month. So this October, as we gather in a public building and have public meetings and sing worship songs loudly and run an alpha course telling anyone that comes freely about who Jesus is, over 300 Christians around the world will be executed because they believe that Jesus is Lord. Each month, over 200 churches and properties owned by Christians are destroyed, and each month, over 700 forms of violence, including beatings and rape and abductions, are committed against Christians. So this August, when we held our backyard Bible camp and uh, shared the good news of Jesus with kids in our community, a Baptist church in Kazakhstan, eight people were arrested and put in jail for doing the same thing. So eight people in a Baptist church in Kazakhstan put in jail for doing the same thing that we did this summer. Do you get that? So the only reason that we're not gathering tonight and praying for Jody and Courtney that they're not in jail and we're praying for their release, the only reason we're not doing that is geography. The only reason we're not gathering and praying for our children's workers to be released from prison tonight at TAG is because what we did, we did in Canada. What they did, they did in Kazakhstan. We pull out our Bible on the bus in Fredericton and somebody might give you a funny look. You do it in North Korea and you face execution. The only difference is where you pull it out. It's the same Bible. Men and women, young and old, today and centuries ago, understands Paul's words to Timothy when he said, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so it's exciting to see the focus of not just our church, but the, but the church in the West and their new focus on social justice, towards social justice, but um, will our efforts be big enough and strong enough to include the persecuted church in the world around us? And it doesn't get the same media exposure, and it doesn't get the same celebrity support as human trafficking and other things. It's not very cool, but there are brothers and sisters in Christ in the world around us who are in the midst of intense injustice simply because they believed in Jesus, and they didn't choose to be born in North Korea or Somalia 
or Sudan. Understanding the context of this event in Esther with Agag and Saul and the Amalekites can have a, help us have a better picture of what's going on here in Esther. But when we read this and we see the persistence of persecution towards God's people all through history, even in the present day, some big, big questions come to mind. Some big, big questions come to mind. We all have big questions about suffering. For me, in particular, the idea of suffering because of Christ and persecution, it's just that much more amplified. Because in reality, everyone, Christian or not, goes through suffering. But when we go through it because of Christ, then it's amplified because you know that if you were not with God, you would not be enduring the suffering. Do you see what I mean? We all go through suffering. Everyone goes through suffering. There's still big questions in our head about it. But when you go through it because of Christ, your reasons and the questions and your confusion are just amplified because if you weren't with God, who is the maker of heaven and earth, you would not be going through what you're going through. And so some fairly big, big questions, the biggest of which when we see the persecution of the church or any suffering for that matter is why, right? It's why. So at Alpha this week, the icebreaker was, if you could ask God one question, what would it be? And a lot of the responses start to gravitate towards that. Why? Why genocide? Why suffering? Why Alzheimer's? They focus around that type of thing, right? Nothing like an icebreaker that takes you into the deepest, biggest questions in the human heart. I spent five years at summer camp, so I'm used to, you know, what is your name and what is your favorite cereal? <coughs> Alpha goes for what question would you ask God, and we're all talking about the problem of suffering to start our evening. <coughs> so needless to say this morning, we will not attempt to answer the why of persecution, but there are other questions that roll around in our head as well. And next to the question of why is the church persecuted, they are relatively small and easy to answer. And I think answering these questions helps to give us hope in all difficult situations, in the big persecution we see around the world and in the lesser persecution that we experience here. John tells us in the first of uh, the Gospel of John that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness does not overcome it. So when we see the darkness of the persecution against the church, we know that there is rays of hope, of light breaking through in that. There has to be rays of hope breaking through. And so we'll look at three questions. The first question is, where is God? When we read about Haman wanting to kill all the Jews, when we read about Stephen being stoned to death in Acts, when we read about churches being burned down in Nigeria, where is God? The edict issued by the king for the destruction of the Jews within the Persian Empire was issued the day before the Jews celebrated Passover. So Passover was a time when the Jews killed the lamb and remembered their salvation from Egypt back in Exodus, and how ironic that on the day 
they would choose the lamb to be slaughtered, the edict went out saying that they had been chosen to be slaughtered. And so the pain in the question, where is God, is only intensified because they're getting ready to celebrate their deliverance from captivity. They're getting ready to celebrate their great God who saves. And then the edict goes out announcing their upcoming destruction. But when we look ahead to Jesus, the ultimate Passover lamb, the lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world, our answer becomes clear because when we see Jesus on the cross, when we see the intensity of the persecution towards him, when we see the physical agony and the torment that was put on him, and then we look past that and see the great good that comes from the excruciating death of Jesus, we know that God is at work through persecution, not in spite of persecution. That God is at work through the persecution of the church and not in spite of it. The cross shows us that God reigns even in the midst of the most severe persecution towards his people and is even using it to accomplish his plans. We might not be able to answer why it is happening, but we do know where God is in the midst of the persecution. He is right there. He is right there working through the persecution, not in spite of it. So the king's edict sent out in Esther 3, God is working through it. Stephen's death in Acts, God is working through it. The Roman Colosseum, God is working through it. Unjust governments and extremists, God is working through it. And as hopeless and cruel and confusing as some situations seem, for the question, where is God? God puts our eyes on the cross and he answers, I'm right here. I'm right here. We might not be tortured and imprisoned, but whatever small persecution you might be going through, God knows how tough it is. He knows the sting of it. He knows the confusion. And he says, I am right here. Second, we ask the question, what am I supposed to do? Well, for Christians in other parts of the world enduring intense persecution, we should pray, we should help, we should support in whatever way we can. When one member suffers, all suffer together. And if persecution falls to us, we are to patiently endure. And the verse that Marilyn read earlier says that we're to even rejoice and to give glory to God in the midst of it all. And if that isn't radical enough God calls us not just to endure with our enemies but he calls us to forgive our enemies as well Rick and I went to a, a meeting last Friday night with Voice of the Martyrs who's an organization that works with the persecuted church around the world and they had a guy there from Iran whose dad helped to plant 30 over 30 churches in Iran and you know, was really seeing God work there. And then one night, his dad just disappeared. And they gathered to pray, and they hoped that he'd come back. And then they got a call for him to come identify a body at the morgue. And he went, and 
uh, still he said I was not believing that it would be dead, that I'd just go and say, you know, oh, you made a mistake. But he went and looked at the body and it was had been, you know, brutally murdered and it was his dad. And the one, one thing I appreciated that he said, he just relayed how uh, incredibly hard it was to come to a place of forgiveness for those who had done that. And I mean, he was probably 40 years old or so and just relaying how difficult it was for him to get to that spot where he could forgive those who had killed his dad just for being a Christian, just for being a leader in the church. But he was able to get there. He was able to get there because of the great forgiveness that he experienced from his heavenly father. He was able to forgive those who had killed his earthly father. The same power that rose Jesus from the grave was alive in him today. The power to forgive even his enemies. Lastly, we say, what's the point? So yes, God is working, not in spite of persecution, but even through persecution, as confusing as that might be for us. Yes, I see what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to pray. I'm supposed to give glory to God. I'm supposed to rejoice. Like that song we sang, um, there is strength when I say, I will praise you. We're supposed to give glory to God through it all. We're supposed to forgive even our enemies who are persecuting us. But what's the point? Why should we do it? And Jesus says in Matthew 5, 11 and 12, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. Why? For your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So one thing that hits us when we read Esther 3, like I said at the first, is that Mordecai, at least for now, does not get his reward, right? He does not get his reward for whatever reason. The king forgets it, it's passed over, and he does not get it. Now, eventually, as we go through, you'll see that he does get his reward. But when we read this in Exodus or in Esther 3, it should echo in our hearts that we do not serve a king like that. We do not serve a king who forgets. We do not serve a king who needs to be reminded of our service to him. We serve a king who rewards. We serve a king who rewards. And so sure he is that he will fulfill his promise and that our faithfulness to him through persecution will be rewarded. He says in Matthew 5, you go ahead and you rejoice right now. You can go ahead and be glad and you can rejoice right now because the promise of your great reward in heaven is sure. You can bank on it to the point where you can rejoice even in the midst of persecution. It's amazing. Matthew 5. Why? What's the point? Is the sure promise of the great reward in heaven when we endure. And James 1 says, Blessed are those who remain steadfast under trial, for in the end 
you will receive the crown of life. You will receive the crown of life. So when we read about Haman seeking to destroy all of God's people, when we look through history and we see similar attitudes and actions, even up to our present day, our mind can be filled with many, many questions. We might not be able to answer all of them, but for three, at least, the answer is clear in whatever persecution it might be, from verbal jabs to physical torture. Where is God? He's right there working through it all. What am I supposed to do? You're supposed to pray. You're supposed to endure. You're supposed to entrust yourself to him. You're supposed to rejoice and be glad even in the midst of the persecution because you know that your endurance through the persecution will bring you to a great reward in heaven. And what's the point? It's the sure promise of the crown of life that lays ahead. It's amazing that when we think about how sovereign God is and his great power and his great love for us, we saw it last week with our compromises, but even in the midst of persecution towards you, he promises that when you experience the fullness of his joy and his love for eternity, when you experience that, the things, the, the momentary afflictions that you've gone through will be nothing in light of that. And he is so sure of that, he says, even in your situation right now, I am so sure of that, you can rejoice and be glad. You can rejoice and be glad. And he gives us the power, the freedom to forgive our enemies and to give glory to him even in the midst of some harsh, harsh things that are going on around the world. Such is the greatness and the love and the power of the God that we serve. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you've done through Jesus. We thank you that when we look to the cross of Jesus Christ, we know that you work all things together for good, even in the midst of intense persecution. We know that you are going to use it for your good, that you are able to redeem it, and you are able to be glorified through it. And there are many questions in our head when we look at you know, why people are persecuted the way they are and why they're treated the way they are because of following you. But we declare this morning that we know that you are a good, good father. And we praise you for what you've done. And we pray that for our brothers and sisters around the world who are right now this morning uh, not worshiping you openly and publicly, but they're hiding, they're in fear uh, we pray for them. We pray that they would stand fast, that they would endure, that they would fix their eyes on their great reward in heaven, and they would endure and give glory to you. And we pray for ourselves. We pray that any um, light persecution that we experience would not shake us, but we too would fix our eyes on you. We'd fix our eyes knowing that you are a good God who loves us and that we would endure through the same thing, that the joy of you would be our strength. We pray, Father, that your joy would be our strength through any type of persecution that we might experience. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.